Today's episode is for international medical graduates as we tell you everything that IMGs need to know to thrive in their work and financially when coming to the UK. We're also joined by a really special guest who helps us out with some details around visas, how to find work, how to find somewhere to live, how much could you expect to earn in the UK and how might that compare to somewhere like, for example, India. That bit was super interesting to me, especially about the change in that trend over the last 10 years. Then we get into the technical side, demystifying the UK's tax system and explaining how you can save tax on really, really simple methods, all available on our website for free. We get into the pension and specifically the NHS pension for international medical graduates and answer some common questions around that. So hopefully this helps you if you're an international medical graduate. It could also help you if anyone really, because we are demystifying quite complex topics. Thank you so much for watching or listening. And of course, don't forget to hit the subscribe button on whatever player you're watching or listening on so that you don't miss any episodes. New episodes coming out on the podcast every Tuesday. New YouTubes coming out every week. If you're on YouTube and you've got a question, drop it in the comments and we'll try and answer it for you. Thanks so much for listening. The Medics Money podcast helps doctors, dentists and other professionals make better financial decisions. Hosted by myself, Dr. Tommy Perkins, a GP. And by me, Dr. Ed Cantelow, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and chartered tax advisor. This podcast is for general information only and does not constitute any form of advice and tax allowances and rates are subject to change. So it's my pleasure to welcome to the this episode, Dr. Naveen Kurthy from DrUK.com. Hi, Naveen. Hi, Tommy. How are you? We're good. So we met a while ago when we did a webinar on coming to the UK as an international medical graduate because you're moving to a different country, whole different way of practicing medicine, whole different financial system, which is obviously where we were involved. So that was really good. But we thought we should definitely do something on the podcast about this because I know that you work with loads of international medical graduates and you're the expert at bringing them over. But why don't you just tell us a little bit about your own journey, how you got to being here today? Thanks. I'm, I'm glad actually we met in even and then we are here now. Coming to my journey, I'm Naveen, originally from a small South Indian town, in fact. And I graduated from medical school in 2000. I worked there for a couple of years and I worked with one of kind of an eminent surgeon who returned from UK. And I thought, OK, let me try something like this. I did the exams. They're called CLAB exams to get your GMC registration. Started with something called a clinical attachment, where you understand the system. You pay into the system to the NHS trust where I was doing the attachment, some little money. It's around, I think at that point, 120 pounds per month. I did for three to four months, got my first break as an show during that period. And subsequently I worked in London, guys in St. Thomas and North Pedics. Did my basic surgical training in uh, South Wales, Cardiff and Swansea rotation. Completed my MRCS. Did my diploma in sports medicine and enrolled for MD in orthopedics at Stanmore, Royal National Orthopedics through UCL. Uh, that's how my career progressed. I did get into my breakthrough ST3 in time, and eventually I continued doing lat positions, equivalent positions. And I did my Markimovsky so that I could move into the trauma side and the A&E side of things. 
three years ago, I enrolled or four years ago into an NHS clinical entrepreneur program because I've been a bit entrepreneurial since I moved back into London from Cardiff days. And I completed my fellowship and I became a mentor on the program. And I did my UCL Partners Innovation Fellowship, particularly in the workforce strategy. During this period, I started my own recruitment agency called Dr. UK. Unlike the traditional recruitment agencies, which have been giving a lot of false information to the doctors or the hopes in terms of promising and a very fruitful career, we thought that we would be different. We went through the journey as an uh, overseas doctor come and work in the system. Not necessarily system is straightforward because when you move in, everything is uh, looks rosy and green, but not that straightforward. I've seen, I personally encountered and coming in, landing in the airport, finding your first accommodation or flat, finding your first job, opening a bank account, getting a SIM card, they're all painful. And this was uh, almost 17 years ago. And what I noticed over the last six, seven years is that the same pain and then the problem still exists, despite having the Facebook, WhatsApp, and much more easier access to the smartphones. Those troubles still persevere. So we thought we can do something different. We can help the NHS spending billions in the locum and having that compromised service, not having enough doctors or nurses. And more importantly, look after these guys who come like me as an IMG doctor, we call them, international medical graduate. Tell them the reality, what happens in the NHS, how the system is different, so that the time it takes for them to get into a job, the time it takes them to integrate and settle into a job and progress in their careers shouldn't be that long. The time to open a bank account, time to get a SIM card shouldn't be that troublesome as how we had experienced. That's how Dr. UK as a recruitment agency arose. Three years of a bit of a journey because the red tape around recruiting into the NHS is not that straightforward. We broke those barriers. We got multiple framework approvals. We started working with uh, multiple NHS trusts, Chelsea Westminster, Hillingdon, Princess Alexandra, East Kent, and a few others. Uh, importantly, doctors are happy because they had the first-hand guidance and the support from doctors. The NHS trusts are happy because they had doctor, they had recruitment from us who went through the journey, who understand the differences between the two systems and help them connect. That isn't brief, and I hope I wasn't very elaborate. That's just amazing. I love this because you know basically you experience the problem and you're solving that problem for yourself 20 years ago. So it's just like medics money, really. See a problem do something about it. We love working with other doctor-led organizations as well. You also showed your age a bit there because you said P-R-H-O. So I know what P-R-H-O means as well because I was a P-R-H-O, but that's a pre-registration house officer. So now they call it F1. So that tells me that you were in the NHS around 2005 or six. So look, we're looking good for our age. I would agree, Naveen, like for sure. But that's what P-R-H-O means. Okay, so you talked a bit about some of the challenges that that they that the international medical graduates face like tell me about what is different from working in the nhs to working in when you worked in india where you worked for a few years right yes i did work <clears throat> and then i still have my connections my parents are there so i do frequently travel and then engage with a lot of doctors actually i don't one thing i do is i don't go and tap a doctor and say hey come to uk but there are so many who aspire to come to UK or go to US and give them the reality check. 
In the process, I engaged with a few hospitals who asked me to come and speak for them. And the big difference is the training. Indian training system is predominantly built around the British way. So we have four and a half years of medical school training followed by F1 year. We call them as internship or house surgeons in India. You rotate through multiple subspecialities, gather experience. And a lot of doctors do a three years of structured training. Unlike F2 and then subsequently two years, CT1, CT2, now it is IMT3. But then they do three years of structured training. It could be in medicine or it could be in core medicine or core surgery. And a lot of people end up just practicing there. And very few. And then because there are almost one million doctors at the moment practicing in India. Out of them, the specialists are only around 200 or 180,000. Quite a few end up being just the generalist. And most doctors, uh, particularly where the ones doctor who want to come to the UK work in the cities and they work in private sector. It's not like the government sector as in the NHS. And the system in the private is usually, of course, they do follow because uh, the doctors who I engage with, they complete the Royal College respective membership exam. But then the hospitals are driven in a way that the, doc- the patients are admitted. And over here, obviously for us, we to save the bed status, we work around the system in a way that if a patient comes within CURB 65 score 2, we tend to discharge them within home antibiotic. But then same patient coming with a CURB 65 2, score 2, would be encouraged to get admitted into a private system. So that is one of the big structural difference. Another thing, waiting list. There is no GP kind of picture in India. If I have a back pain, I go into a private hospital, I see a spinal surgeon, Within 30 minutes, one hour, he'll arrange an MRI scan. I pay around 100 pounds for an MRI scan. Get MRI scan in another two hours, reported in 30 minutes or one hour after that. By the same day, I go and see the spinal surgeon. If there is a disc prolapse significant, causing me some neurology, that spinal surgeon will operate on me the following day. Imagine a similar back pain patient, or he might say that if you don't need a surgery, he might say that go for the physio. Imagine a similar thing over here. There could be an it could be in discardis, it could be in metastatic lesion, and the whole referral journey. And this, most doctors who come from overseas find it hard because the system is organically different, and they haven't encountered this kind of a delay or referral referral mechanism. And this is what we prepare them, and they need to understand as well. So we strongly advise the hospitals to provide the shadowing period so they recognize and understand the system, which is really crucial. Otherwise, they tend to make a lot of errors and mistakes. And in the process, the hospital not necessarily like the way a new doctor has made a decision, made a referral, and he assumed that, okay, this particular problem could be solved, but then it's not going to be. Because if they go into the GP system, it will take them 18 months. Yeah, really interesting to hear the differences there. Training in medical school sounds similar, but after that, wildly different to the NHS. And that's really helpful to understand that. You said in your sort of agency, you don't, you don't kind of sugarcoat it. Give us the, yeah, take the sugar off. And what do you say to people that you work with? There's pros and there's cons, no doubt. The pros, I I think it's an experience, to be honest. Uh, I don't think if a doctor in the UK, actually, uh, I've been an examiner for the final year medical students at St. George's as well. And after two years of foundation training, they want to go and experience one year in Australia. I would not discourage. You don't necessarily. I know that F3 and F4s have come into play lately. But then 
you don't necessarily have to be stuck in one system, one way of doing the things. You can experience. If a doctor wants to go and get an experience in Asia, in Africa, that's again a new learning for them. In India, it is a bit like a rat race. I went through that. When I applied for my medical school, uh, the competition is like, at that point, back in uh, late 90s, there were only 1,200 seats and then 100,000 applications. And that is how competitive it was. So you have to work really hard. So you get into medical school and getting through the medical school, and it's again not an easy, obviously, every one of us know that. And then the competition to become that specialist even more harder. Once you pass through the exams and you get through and then you start your own practice, you need to establish yourself. It's like a rat race. So I think that to take your time off that and understand the new system, particularly I think our emphasis on evidence-based medicine and the current best practice is a bit better than some hospitals. I won't say all the hospitals, but some hospitals where most doctors work. So this experience is really invigorating and is good. You know? This is the good side to the story. Finances, the doctors who do well in India, I think that they earn definitely more than doctors who work in NHS over here. <clears throat> Let me tell you. <clears throat> but not all the doctors earn so highly. And so there is a financial benefit as well. I don't see that usually the biggest driving factor lately. When I came, it was. When I came, my salary in India was around once per month. And you work as an PRHO, it was 1,800 to 2,200 pounds. So it's almost like around 20 times different. But uh, now a PRHO new graduate makes around 800 to 900 pounds per month. So it's a hardly three times. So there's a big distinction then. And once you become a consultant, your salary in India, take-home salary is around 3,000 pounds. Over here, we get around 4,500 or 5,000 take-home salary. So the difference is not really that major. So that's not necessarily the big driving factor there. Training and experience, a lot of them want to do the CCT or the CSER and then get onto the specialist register, continue and then establish and settle into the families. These are the driving factors, but I tell them not everybody gets into an CCT role or get into the institute trainings and it's becoming competitive lately. And I put the salary picture before them. Some do come with, but then I tell them, this is the reality. This is how an average SHO registrar, registrar grade or a consultant grade salary is done. So for every 10 applications, doctors who come to me, I think three of them automatically disconnect. Oh, I thought it's different. I thought uh, I can get hundred pounds per hour, uh, but that only happens if, you, if every day is a Christmas, and you are on a dedicated locum visa, which you don't get it because you are tied to a hospital which issues you a visa where you are on a full fixed term or a full-time permanent contract. Yeah, uh, this is uh, the factors. But the doctors who I see come here, work there on a non-training role, sometimes two, three years, if they decide, if they like the place, if they want to have the families growing, and then try to apply and progress their careers through the SC3 or the CSA route. Caesar is an alternative to get the specialist registration or a few of them choose to go back but their experience is what they take back with them awesome yeah so that is super interesting like rundown really interesting about the salary differential the gap is basically narrowing as you say and in fact once you reach consultancy in india they're, they're making more that that's super interesting i definitely echo what you said as well that 
if you are qualified as a doctor, that is an incredibly useful passport to travel the world, to take the opportunity to practice medicine in different environments. I did that. I never regretted it. I'm hoping to do it again one day well, once the family's grown up and stuff. But it is so interesting to see medicine in different countries, cultures. And it's a privilege, really, because it is a universal health work and help people anywhere on the globe. So definitely echo that. I don't know if we want to go in too deep on this, but you mentioned visas, which is, I know, really complicated. But is it worth just saying a bit about that? Because I know that's uh, something that a lot of international medical graduates uh, worry about, understandably. What's the situation? How does that work? Of course, uh, I've been dealing and supporting our doctors uh, a lot over the time. And it's become easier to get in uh, health and care, it's called lately, work visa. So there are... Any a doctor, say, who decides to travel from India or the subcontinent or anywhere around the world to the UK, they are uh, eligible to apply for two kinds of visa. One is a Vista visa. Usually, they apply on a Vista visa to do their MR, Chem OSCE exam or the MRCP PACES exam in London, or otherwise to do the PLAB exam. That is valid for six months. Say, for example, Hillingdon Hospital has done interviews for MRCP doctors, recently they recruited some of our doctors, and the department was happy, HR was happy, and the candidate accepted the offer letter. The hospital issues them and what it's called as a health and care sponsorship visa or a document called COS, Certificate of Sponsorship. Using this document, the doctor applies for an tier two visa or a work visa, or otherwise currently the health and care visa. Usually it is issued either for one year or three year period. And during this period, they can extend the visa within the same organization or a different organization, or by the end of the visa term, they might decide to go back. If you are a non-doctor, but a family of three, this journey applying for the visa and coming to the UK would cost anything around 5,000 pounds for three years, roughly. Because there's something called immigration health surcharge. So you need to pay £600. It's like health insurance, private health insurance, but you're only accessing the NHS service. Only for the NHS staff, doctors, nurses, and whoever working in the NHS sphere, this has been cut down to roughly around £800 for a family of three, once again, I'm saying. Say for a three-year visa. So this is an incentive. Earlier, it would take around six weeks to get the visa. We guide our doctors that they get it like anything from five to 10 working days. So the Department of Health has incentivized the overseas healthcare staff to come and work in the NHS system by cutting the visa cost, which is good. And that is how actually there is a bit of an increasing number of recruitment and at the same time decreasing the duration of the visa issuance as well. A doctor or a nurse who stays in the UK for five years on this particular health and care visa or tier two visa, just like any other professionals as well, they would be eligible to become a permanent resident. We call it as ILR, indefinite leave to remain. After being in the UK on one year of an ILR status, they can apply for the British citizenship. And that is what I did back in 2020. So this is the classic journey, but not, as I said, not necessarily all the doctors want to stay and continue, and some might not even find a job. And the ones who stay and then find a job for the five years, they become eligible for the permanent residency. Is that clear? Awesome. <laughs> it sounded clear when you said it, but if you asked me, if you tested me on it right now, I'd be confused because it does sound very com complex and confusing. What's the best way to navigate that 
uh, complex. I'm going to put it out there. Ed's financial bit is complex, but that is that's complex. Yeah, I, I, we mastered this. So we support our doctors. For any hospitals who are looking to recruit, we can help with this aspect because we guide our doctors in this journey. Yeah, yeah. Okay, awesome. Naveen, that was awesome. Ed, Ed's got some stuff that on common financial issues as well. I don't know if you want to do that as well, because uh, that was a really good part of the uh, presentation we did with. Should we do that as well? Because your input there is really valuable. Yes, and I have some questions for you, if that's okay. Because these are the common questions right. I've encountered when I first came. And uh, loads of doctors actually have these questions because their understanding about the tax system and then the pensions is almost literally. So any guidance from you will help you cool. with the video with Ed, that. that's you, mate. Yeah, that's you, buddy. Let's see these uh, tax and pension slides. Let's do it. Yeah, that that's great. Yeah, I thought I'd just go through just some very basic stuff because you say just to make sure that everyone knows the basics is really important. And the, the tax system is very confusing, like a lot of things in the UK, just like you've been saying, Naveen, there's lots of complexities about coming over here. But once you are here, once you've settled down, understanding how the tax system works is important, but also complicated. So we're basically going to stick to the very uh, the bare bones, the real basics that everyone uh, needs to know. Once they're settled in the UK, how exactly does this complicated tax system work? So let's go through some of the, the basics. The first thing to know is, unlike many countries around the world, in the UK, our tax year runs from the 6th of April to the following 5th of April. And that's really important because all the tax rates, all the tax bans, all the thresholds, everything gets set by the tax year, not the calendar year, for example. So we're currently, today, we're in 23, towards the end of 2023. So we're in the 2023 to 2024 tax year, which runs from the 6th of April, 2023, all the way up to the 5th of April, 2024 when that when it ends okay for most people in the uk the vast majority of us we all get a chunk of tax-free personal sorry we get a, a chunk of tax-free income which is called the personal allowance and for most of us that's twelve thousand five hundred and seventy pounds okay so you should get your salary each month and in total over the whole tax year you should get a chunk of that tax-free so twelve thousand five hundred seventy pounds once you've got that tax-free chunk, then the income tax rates apply. So if you're in most of the UK, apart from Scotland, you'll be taxed at either 20%, 40%, or 45% based on the rate, based on how much income you, you earn. Okay. In Scotland, they're a little bit different. They have more rates. So their tax rates are 19%, 20%, 21%, 42%, percent and 47%, because the Scottish government have basically added extra rates in. And also you'll note that in Scotland, they are slightly higher as well at the upper end, okay? So basically you take your first 12,570 pounds of income, that's tax-free. The next 37,700 is taxed at 20% and above that is 40% all the way up to quite a nice amount, 125,140 pounds. And above that, in most of the UK, you're paying 45%. In Scotland, it's 47%. That's just looking at what we call non-savings income, okay? So that's really basically looking at your employment income. And there are other things as well. So if you were to become down the line a GP partner, for example, those are the rates there as well. But just bear in mind that there are different tax rates for other types of, of income potentially and other types of non-income. So for example, capital gains would be taxed differently. But that's the key thing here for your salary when you come over to the UK. Another thing to note that's really essential is that HMRC, 
HMRC are the organization that will collect the taxes. So you'll see HMRC banded around the place. That stands for His Majesty's Revenue and Customs. Uh, they're the ones responsible for collecting all the tax. And I think Naveen had a, a question. Was that? Yeah, uh, it, it was easy for me to ask at that point rather than remember. So when you mentioned about the zero tax for the first £12,750, let's assume a doctor comes and starts working on September 20th. And he gets his first salary on October 25th. That's his uh, annual salary coming at an annual salary of £72,000. That would be before tax, £6,000 would be his monthly salary. So in October, when he gets his first salary on October last Friday, will it be without tax or with the tax? Or will that 12750 taken over, spread over the 12-month period or would it apply from the very first month? So it would only mean that he would get almost a tax-free money for the first month. Mm-hmm. So that will help him to settle in. Say, if he want to put a deposit towards his house, buy in the furniture for his new flat. So he will have a bit more, a 1000 or 1500 more chunk in his account rather than if it was dispersed, spread over the whole, month, whole year. Yeah, they're, they're basically there, there are two ways in which HMRC do this. Okay, so sometimes they will give you uh, one twelfth of your personal allowance each month. But what they usually do is they will um, they make it cumulative, basically. So, you know, that doctor you mentioned, if they start in September, they would have had April, May, June, July, August, etc. Of um, where they haven't had a personal allowance. So those chunks will end up in the October payslip as well. So they'll get quite a nice initially quite a nice amount of income or they should do uh, because HMRC will apply quite a large chunk of personal allowance that hadn't been used up to that point so a lot of our our, our listeners will have started for example as F1s in August and they will get their their first paycheck in August and they may notice that there's very little if any tax on that first payslip because HMRC are catching up with a personal allowance obviously as things go on you would suddenly notice a tax bill climbing because you won't get quite as nice a personal allowance. But you're right, they should normally get a, a much healthier looking pay packet in October, in your example. Not always the case, as I say, and there isn't, I can't give you any rhyme or reason as to why it would be the case. Sometimes HMRC apply what they call uh, non-cumulative. So some people may see on their tax slip or the pay slip, it says NON, and that is just where HMRC are applying a a pro rata or one twelfth for their personal allowance and then catching up at the end. But for most people, it should be a nice October in your example. Got it. Got it. Perfect. All right. Great. And uh, yeah, just, just to say as well. So obviously we talked about income tax and we mainly just there talking about income tax when it comes to your salary or if down the line you locum as self-employed individual or you become a GP partner, those are the rates and bands we just talked about. Now, we should mention national insurance contributions. That's basically the UK's social security system. Okay, anyone who is employed has a UK employment uh, or um, partnership or business self-employment business will uh, basically have to pay national insurance contributions. Okay, effectively, essentially another. Basically, everyone treats this as income tax, but the government don't like to call it income tax because of political reasons. So they still call it national insurance contributions. Every now and again, people will say they're going to merge income tax and national insurance all together to make it simpler. But of course, the government then worried that everyone would think their income tax has gone up, even though they just merged the two. So they keep it separate. For all intents and purposes, it's another income tax. Think of it like that. But it is deemed to be social security contributions. If you pay into 
the UK social security system, you can then get benefits out of it later on. So for example, in the UK, state pension depends on how much national insurance you pay. There are different types of national insurance. For you guys, if you come over to the UK, become an employee, then you'll be paying national insurance at 12% on your salary between 50,000 odd and 12,470. And then above 50,270 pounds, you'll be paying national insurance at 2%. Okay. If you become a GB partner or you locum as self-employed, the rates are slightly different. They're slightly more nuanced, but fairly similar. For example, someone who's a GP partner or someone who is a self-employed locum, they would also pay exactly the same national insurance, but 9% rather than 12%. So a very small difference. Yeah, it can be material, but effectively, the point is this. National insurance contributions, another chunk of money out of your pay slip, basically another tax or another income tax. Just one thing to say, guys, if you do ever end up getting multiple employments, which may not apply to you if you're employed by trust and you're just there with the trust, if you ever do get multiple employments, though, you can end up overpaying national insurance. So if you ever get to the point where you have multiple employments with different trusts, just make sure you come to Medics Money to look at our guide because we go through when that happens and what to do about it if it does happen. Yep. Yeah, I mean... Quick question, Ed. Because sometimes actually a doctor is working in India, we talked about the salaries and the, uh, earlier. So usually the working hours is anything from 54 to 60 hours per week. And over here it is 40. So there might be a chance that some of them intend to do locums. So how does it, mm-hmm. and locums, they are allowed on the visa, which we talked earlier about, they're allowed to work 20 hours per week in a trust outside the parent organization. And within that trust, they can work any number of hours as locum. They could be on a post-weekend or a long night or on an annual leave and then still might decide to work. What is your advice at this stage, particularly with the NI? Should they have to file in separately or stick around only to that one trust so the money gets paid into the additional extra hours of work, gets paid into their parent account? So, first of all, of course... Obviously, national insurance is an important consideration, but what they, sh- they they need to do really is work out what's best for them to do anyway. National insurance, you know, that t- national insurance tail shouldn't be wagging the dog here, if that makes sense. I would say if you work for the same trust and do you do locum hours for exactly the same trust, then everything is simpler because you'd only be employed by that one trust and therefore your pay slip, your national insurance should all, in theory, be correct. Payroll departments, bless them, aren't the the best in the world when it comes to actually applying the right tax and the right national insurance. But you'd expect that to be much simpler and for the amounts to be correct. Okay, if they were to offer their hours out to a separate a separate trust, a totally different employer, things are a little bit more complicated. They'll have separate pay slips, but really, it shouldn't make a huge amount of difference. The the key thing is when we talk about national insurance, you should be paying twelve percent national insurance on your total total employment from 12,570 all the way up to 50,270. The issue is if you think about if you have employer A and employer B and they're different trusts, employer B and employer A, they may not know what your total, what your salary is. So they, if you were to get, let's say 50,000 from each of them, I know you wouldn't, but just as an example, if you got 50,000 from each of them, you shouldn't be paying 12% national insurance on both those salaries. You should be paying 12% up to 50,000 in total, and then the other 50,000, you should be paying at 2%. So it can, you can get into a situation where you're overpaying national insurance. But if you're savvy about it, if you just look at your payslip and you think to yourselves, actually, that national insurance is clearly way over what I'm expecting. Let's say your salary is in the year is 60,000 pounds. 
you should be getting on your locum a 2% national insurance, not a 12%. So if you're seeing quite big numbers, you can infer that you're actually over overpaying national insurance. And you can talk to your payroll department, or alternatively, you can talk to the National Insurance Contributions Office and they can help you sort that out. Okay. Awesome question, so, though, because such a common scenario. Yeah, good. Yeah, it is really common. It's really common for, for, for a lot of people when they look. I've got a, I had a friend, a friend sorry, in, in Worthing who ended up with his locum in so much to try and pay for like some house renovations, school, school fees, etc. I think he had maybe five or six different trusts that he worked for, and they're all charging different national insurance amounts and... It can get quite messy, so for, it's a very good question. Just to say, in the UK, you should be able to get tax relief for your employment expenses, or for a lot of them anyway, but bear in mind that you are the ones that have to make that claim, okay? It's not automatic in the UK. What you're allowed to deduct against your employment income for tax purposes, there are five main categories. The key ones are any professional fees or subscriptions that are paid to an organisation approved by HMRC, you should be able to get a tax deduction for those, okay? So that would include any Royal College fees, your GMC fee, any BMA fees, any fees to the Medical Protection Society or any other indemnity insurer, okay? You should be able to get a tax deduction, you guys can get the tax back on those expenses, but you have to do the work yourself. Sadly, HMRC won't let tell you that, payroll won't let you know that, you have to do the work yourself, okay? And you can make a claim quite easily enough using our really tax-free guide, Sorry, our free guide, sorry, it's a free guide, not a tax-free guide. Our free guide at minixmoney.co.uk. I'm interested in a tax-free guide if it's available. Yeah, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Here's a tax-free guide. But yeah, it's really simple. It really is. One thing to say is it only applies to expenses that you've incurred once you have started to earn a salary in the UK. Okay, so we get a lot of questions saying, I've incurred all these fees for employment before I started work. Can I claim those back? Sadly not, okay. And that applies as well to people like medical students. They often say, I pay for a BMA fee when I was in my fifth year of medical school. Can I claim that back? So like, well, no, sadly, because you weren't employed. Okay. You can also claim for the past four year, four tax years and the current tax year. So if you forget in one tax year, don't worry, you can claim for past years as long as you're not uh, more than four years, four years too late. Okay. And that and just to say, I say allowable professional expenses, we mentioned them before, but Key things to also mention are if you pay for an examination that the, via a Royal College, so if you get a junior doctor training contract with one of the Royal Colleges and you take an exam, you can claim those exams as well and any resits as well. And also any, technically any costs of any of travel or other associated costs of that exam. So when I did my GP exam, I had to travel to London and get a hotel the night before because it was randomly at eight o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And they just aren't any trains from Bognor at that time. So I was able to claim my hotel and train fee against uh, my income as well. So just think about that as well. Some this things that really people ask us, can I, yeah, no, they, they're good, absolutely. And uh, this may be also helpful, but a bit sadder. These are fees that you can't claim for. So a lot of people ask us about the following. If they, if you pay for a revision course for your exams, can I claim that back? Sadly not. Okay. So HMRC actually didn't want you to be able to claim your exam fees in the first place, but they lost a court case, much to everyone's surprise. So you can now claim your exams or exam fees, but revision courses, they still say no to. Likewise, sadly, anything where you're actually getting learning, continuing professional development, diplomas, courses, etc. If you're not actually doing your job at the same time, which let's face it, you never normally are, you actually online or you're in a classroom whatever you can't claim for those expenses either it's quite unfair 
I won't go into the reasoning. There is a there is some tax reason behind that, but I won't go into that now. Just to say, fees for teaching diplomas continue professional development. You can't can't claim those back. Okay, tax codes. I found out a. I think it's interesting. You guys may not, but an interesting statistic the other day that forty one percent of all tax codes are incorrect. Of and of those, seventy one percent are overpaying because of their tax code. So it's important to understand what a tax code is and what to look out for. Okay. Your tax code is a code, hence the name, sent to your payroll department by HMRC to tell your payroll department how much income tax to deduct each month. Okay. And at its basic, it's made up of your tax-free or personal allowance divided by 10. So you may remember I said earlier that currently the personal allowance is £12,470. So most people employed in the UK should see a tax code of 1257L. So HMIC will tell your payroll department, here's your tax code, 1257L for Dr. X, uh, and they should then use that to calculate the income tax, okay? You can find that on any payslip or any tax document, okay? Uh, you'll see, you may get at some point, or you should get at some point, something called a P60. That is a document that your employer has to send you around May time that relates to your to the, the tax year that ended, that has just gone, okay? And if you ever leave a job, you should get a P45. So you leave a job, you get a P45, you then will give that to your next employer. Okay, so you can find your tax code in any of those documents. Once you've made a claim for professional expenses, HMRC may adjust your tax code. So you may start off with 1257L, but then you claim for your GMC fee and your BMA fee and all these other fees. And you may notice your tax code looks a bit healthier, looks like it's a higher number. That is because HMRC will have adjusted it to try and give you relief every month rather than you have to keep making claims okay so it's a helpful thing on their part one of the things that confuses a lot of people in the uk nhs is the ridiculous payslip that we get it is very complicated i'm not going to go through all the ins and outs of it okay because what we've done is a minute's money we have a, a basically a blog purely on the nhs payslip which goes through each of the entries all the different areas and what they all mean okay so if you go to our website you can find a really handy explanation of this NHS payslip because it is confusing. It is crazy. There are just lines and numbers everywhere. But if you go through our guide, get your payslip, look at our guide, you should be able to work out what is going on. Okay, so I'd recommend you do that. And I think, uh, I think Tommy is going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the the pension. Yeah, so I don't know how, how does it work in India, Naveen, the pension? Do you, what, how does it work there? So it's a similar model, but I think the retirement age is 65 in India, if I'm not wrong. But my, my dad has been in the government sector, so he retired. He did what is called as a VRS at 60, but then he does still get his pension paid into his account every month, the same way as it is for us. But then unlike the NHS contribution, which is significantly high, I don't think there is a similar contribution from the Indian government. I'm not sure. So because I haven't looked into in detail, but this is a very interesting topic because a lot of doctors do ask me this question. Should I sign into the NHS pension, particularly if I'm not sure if I'm going to stay in the UK, what would happen to that money? So your insights will be helpful. And what would happen to the pension? Say they stayed here for five years, 10 years, and then something changed and then they decide to go back to India or, you know. By the way, when I say India, it doesn't only mean India. It would be the whole Indian subcontinent. So how can they transfer the pension scheme 
if, if you're aware of it. And yeah, I, yeah. I have another yeah, question I mean, to add, by the way, before I go into the pension. Regarding the submissions, uh, because one of the pain a lot of doctors do feel and go through in terms of their tax submissions or self-assessments, getting on call with the HMRC. So is there a mechanism like where they can submit online or do you have any videos? So what, what does Medics Money do for in terms of help with these guys? Do you have any mechanism or an, a built-in platform? So what we recommend at the moment is to use something called the, the personal tax accounts. That's our kind of, that's something that we, we're quite uh, keen on. You're breaking uh, on it. So, I'm not sure if it's just me. Tommy, could you no. hear him? Oh, yeah. Sorry, you broke up a bit, mate. You might have to go for that a bit again. Um, what we recommend at Medics Money is to use something called the personal tax account. So that's something that you can go online and uh, sign up for. And that will show you that. So that's basically so everyone gets a person, every UK taxpayer gets a personal tax account, which tells you how much tax you, you've been paying, as paying you, as you earn, what your tax code is, what the breakdown is, what your national insurance contributions are. It's a really handy resource. And in that, there are many excellent mechanisms for contacting HMRC. So calling HMRC is a mess. It's never worth giving them a call if you can avoid it. And in fact, in the papers the other day, the government was saying, please don't call HMRC if you can avoid it. Inside the personal tax account, there are many different ways to submit data to HMRC. So a classic one, for example, would be you can claim your employment expenses through there. You can change your tax code through there if it's wrong, etc. So we would recommend getting onto that as soon as you get into the UK and using that. See what data they've got, see what they think, see what they know. Because again, HMRC are not infallible, definitely not infallible. So if they, if they show a different employee to the one you've got, you can correct that straight away rather than getting problems down the line. So we would recommend going to that as the first instance. Right, Tommy, please, pensions. Yeah, yeah pensions in four lines. I can start the basics and I'm going to take your excellent questions, Davine. There's two kind of ways that a pension works in the UK. One is called a defined contribution scheme. And this is not how the NHS pension works. This is how uh, private pensions work. So what happens in a defined contribution scheme is that you and your employer pay money into a pot and then... This pot builds up over the time that you're working. When you retire, that amount of pot of money is your retirement. And if that money runs out in retirement, you run out of money in retirement. So if you don't have enough in there, you could theory run out of money. That is not how the NHS pension works. The NHS pension is what's called a defined benefit scheme. And it's generally seen as much better than a private defined contribution scheme. Because in the NHS pension, you pay a smaller contribution and the amount that you pay is tiered. So if you earn more, you pay a higher percentage. But your employer, the NHS, also contributes into your pension. And then at retirement, you don't have a pot of money. You just have a defined amount of money that you get every single year until you die. So in the NHS pension, you are not going to run out of money. Your amount of money is protected from inflation okay, which is especially relevant at the moment because inflation is eroding the value of almost everything at the moment because it's so high. If you have an NHS pension, it's protected from the value of inflation. And it's also backed by the government. It's a state-backed, inflation-proof, guaranteed income for life. All you've got to do is work in NHS to get it. So could consider that a pro or con. So it's very different. And for that reason, it's seen as superior to a private pension. It also comes with some really handy benefits as well. So 
if you die when you're in active service, then your dependents will receive a payout, which is effectively a form of life insurance that's bundled in. If you get ill and can no longer work, then you can get what's called an ill health retirement pension. There's also options to get your spouse a pension and your children a pension in certain situations. So it comes with some benefits. It is incredibly complex. I've just put complex, but a good deal for most. I can't advise you what to do because only a financial advisor can tell you what to do. All I can show you is the benefits that you get. And if you opt out, you lose those benefits. So I think if you, I put retirement at 68 there. So the retirement age in the 2015 scheme, which if you arrived now and joined, you would be in the 2015 scheme. The retirement age in that is linked to state retirement age. So for me, it's 68, but if it might be different for you. So it, it, the retirement age is linked to state retirement age. And it's super interesting that it's later here than in India from what you said. And I guess the final kind of point, which is probably going to answer your question, Naveen, is that let's just go through like your example, like you come here to work and you're not sure if you're going to stay, you're not sure whether to join the pension or what is your options? Well, if you came for five years and you paid into NHS pension at retirement, you could get that pension paid to many overseas bank accounts. So it would just effectively sit there waiting for you until you took it. You could, in certain circumstances, transfer it, which is incredibly complex, but it is possible to transfer it. And again, niche as well, but you could pay into it. And in a certain duration of time frame, I think it's 18 months, but don't quote me, you could get the contributions back if you change your mind. I can't really tell you or the listeners what to do. All I can say is that most people consider the NHS pension a massive benefit of working in the NHS. It is quite flexible in the scenario that you outlined where you came here for five years and then you went somewhere else. So you've got options which could, if your circumstances depend on it, be transferring it, getting it paid at retirement, or maybe getting a refund as well. So yeah, it's really difficult to give you a clear cut answer. All I can say is that it's considered very valuable uh, benefit of working in the NHS. Like I work in the NHS and I consider the pension to be a really important part of my pay and overall reward package. And I think as well, if you opt out, like if you're in the pension, your employer is actually making a contribution towards your pension. If you opt out, most likely you just forego that money, just lose it and you don't get it otherwise. Some trusts will do what's called recycling, but that's really complex. Does that kind of, I can't give you a clear cut answer, like yes or no, but I, hopefully does that help Naveen? It does. And I, I think NHS pension, I recognize it, particularly if we are living much longer than, say, the previous years. Average uh, age of male, instead of being 68, it is 88 now. And NHS pension would continue providing you for another 20 years without even downgrading. And then the average age is increasing in India as well significantly. So I can see the benefit in it. And of course, it's up to individual person's decision because particularly when they first come in, the need for to settle in, actually, uh, they might have a higher needs. I, I do not know, but I, I think this is very insightful and then very helpful, particularly answered a lot of the common financial questions, the tax and uh, I'll signpost them towards the payslip breakdown as well. And I'm sure that will be very informative too. No, all good. Thank you very much. And I think it's gone more than 30 minutes, but then it's all well worth it. Yeah, time flies. Naveed, that was, it was so good to have your insights and expertise, and I hope that covered it. If you're watching on YouTube and you've got questions, 
drop them in the comments and if they're for if they're financial ones we'll pick them up Naveen it'd be awesome if you could pick them up as well if they're non-financial because if someone asks us a visa question we are <laughs> we've got nothing I've put a link on the screen to uh, a free ebook which just contains all those links that Ed mentioned so it contains a guide to the pension it contains a payslip guide it contains the tax rebate link to get really important to claim those things back you can save yourself thousands of pounds and as you say if you've recently moved to a new uh, country, your your expenses are really high. So if you can get a bit of tax back to offset the, the cost of those expenses, brilliant. So hopefully that helps. Naveen, it was awesome. We should do this again sometime. I feel like we are going to do it again because I think people find it really useful to have the combination of your expertise, our expertise, put it all in one big pot. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me, guys. Yeah. Thanks, Bye Naveen. now. Yeah. Awesome. Cheers, Naveen. Take care.